Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson, and we're going to talk today about what, if anything, we can learn from advertised warranty details for a component or a system. Yeah, and this comes from a question that came in and said, hey, it was, I'm paraphrasing, but it was, we're having difficulty getting good life data or failure rates from our vendors for our components. Uh, can we use their warranty um he didn't say duration, but can we use their warranty to back calculate out a failure rate? And and I thought, well, well, that's an interesting question. And my my first thought is no, <laughs> it's <laughs> not really. And it's mostly because I mean I spent quite a bit of time working with people that were setting warranties in all kinds of different industries, and it while the technical time to failure information is an input it's by no means the most important piece of information that sets the warranty policy in the duration no. of the warranty. Um, there's all kinds of things that factor into it. So, I mean, what we do know about warranty is that um, one, we have some idea about what typical warranty failure probabilities are. We have some idea. Um, so in a poor warranty period, obviously that's where that's a period within which the OEM or manufacturer or pro producer, whatever that organization is called, is essentially on the hook for any failures. And that's why what you're talking about is important because they need to predict how many failures they'll need to be on the hook for, and that needs to be embedded into profit projections, et cetera, et cetera. And so we do have let's just call it some idea about what that warranty failure probability would be by industry. I mean, warrantyweek.com is probably as good a source as any uh, regarding what that you'd expect by your industry. Well, you got to be really careful with that because the, like the automotive industry, right? Mm -hmm. GM reports their, their, they have to report due to our, um, Securities and Exchange Commission rules for publicly traded companies, how much money they spent uh, dealing with warranty claims and how mm -hmm. much money they set aside to deal with future warranty claims. The accruals. The accruals, right. Now, GM is a massive company in, and they do everything from little itty bitty, you know, runabouts at our cost. $15,000 all the way up to super luxury stuff and their warranty numbers. And I'm sure they do other things too. They probably sell batteries to somebody else and they probably, they have repair businesses. They, you know, they have distribution centers. I think they even have banking. All of that stuff gets lumped together into one number. And, and what Eric Arnhem in Warranty Week will often put into his listings, his articles, is GM's warranty number is GM's. What they include and what they don't include in that number is up to them. There are some vague guidelines from the SEC what goes into it, but it's up to the company to define what's warranty expense and what's not. And warranty policies also differ. You know, what gets 
counted and what doesn't get counted in, in, you know, like the Apple watch, if you dropped it in water and said, Hey, it doesn't work. They'll look at it and go, well, it got dropped in water. We're not going to cover that. And so it's, it's related to reliability and your, your assumption, I'm going to be generous that it's related to what your profit is and all that stuff is not always a foresight. <laughs> and it's often uh-huh. just, yeah, okay. you know, it's a business decision. Do we want to accept more failures so people think we have a better warranty and we cover it for a longer period of time? Or do we have to because our product's crap and we have to pay for it, you know, this way? Uh, others will create a great product and keep a short warranty because... And then another factor here, Chris, is in Europe, many consumer products are required to have a minimum of a two-year warranty by law. You can't be anything less than that. So is everything under two-year warranty have the exact same failure rate? I doubt it. Right. So I think fact number one is that we have some idea. I think it's still valid because um, you talked about General Motors, which is a huge company, but Warranty Week, for example, does deal with very specific componentry. And there are plenty of suppliers out there which focus on I don't know, just ball bearings or yeah, capacitors. Yeah. And and so there is scope for you to do a bit of research. So I, I will I will I will suggest still say there's some idea. And we know that, you know, it could be between one to ten percent depending on industry as a rule. But as I say to my students, a, a theory or a theorem is something that we can demonstrate to be true true. A rule is something we can't. But it could be useful. So, um, <laughs> okay, like you, you, that's why you have, for example, go a little bit off the topic. But for those who use damage accumulation models, where we try and work out what how we how something accumulates damage, especially when there's different stresses, there are things like miners' rule. It's never been proven. Right. It's just a rule right. that has been used, and in some cases, might help you out. But um, so I think there's some, there's some. We have some idea. That's the first thing. I think the second second fact you mentioned is that um, companies will only take their predicted fa- uh, warranty failure probabilities into consideration in very different ways. Some companies don't even. They're not sophisticated enough or mature enough to <laughs> even even predict what their failure probabilities are. So the failure uh, probability has nothing to do with their warranty period. Well, I've even had the one where this one group, this one company had excellent field prediction. They, they knew when they designed a new product, pretty much to the 10th of a percent, what its, its failure rate is going to be. They had amazing models for all their failure mechanisms. They did all the stuff. They, and and it, they could predict it. And they were, you know, following what the field data was for their existing products. And they were on, they were dead on. And they said, can you help us out? Because our finance guys don't seem to understand how to read a Weibull plot, you know, or or time to failure plot. And the poor finance guy had this beautiful model, all this financial information, everything else. And failure rate was the key component into this thing. And he get this chart. Nobody ever told him how to read it. So he put a number in from the middle. He goes, well, there's the 50th percentile. I'll put that in. It was just completely random what he picked. Right. And I said, you know, we only 
warranties these for six months. You know, how about we pick this number over here? And it was an order of magnitude lower failure rate. And he goes, oh, well, that makes a difference. <laughs> there like, you go. <laughs> Come on, guys. And I taught him what the formula was. And he says, oh, I can put that in here, too. And blah, blah, blah. So if they change the warranty, it would change the outcome. And I was like, but there's silos in different languages. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I... And it is important. I ran in, one of the reasons I really dove deep into reliability is um, when I was at Hewlett Packard, we had what, 50, we called them, Dick Moss described the company as 50 loosely affiliated feudal baronies. And <laughs> they all had their own uh, profit and loss business. They all ran pretty independently and corporate was pretty small compared to, you know, say GM, for example. But the, um, uh, the CEO was doing an all hands presentation and was talking about that we need to be predictable with our quarterly numbers for Wall Street and for all these reasons I don't understand completely. And I said, well, what causes, because I knew firsthand from a number of divisions that one way underestimated their failure rate and then one of their sister organizations way overestimated their failure rate and both missed their profits projections dramatically. And it was caused by just not creating a product either way too, way too good or way better than they expected or way worse than they expected. And so we did a quick analysis with some finance folks and found that reliability uh, compared to what the, the warranty expenses were was a dramatic uh, contributor to the unpredictability of our financial numbers. So right. at that point, then we got a lot of attention saying, oh, geez, we need to actually pay attention to this. So fact number one, we have some idea. Fact number two, the extent to which companies take that idea seriously varies remarkably. Yes. <laughs> so it, it does. So, I mean, the, the other, I mean, but going back to, uh, um, well, the question, I mean, if you go back to the question and if we have a two-year warranty for some part or something that's offered by a company and we suspect from industry data or if like from warranty week that that industry has a 5%, you know, per year failure rate, um, you can do a little bit of math and figure out what, I don't, I don't get how that connects. Because I'd just go to Warranty Week if that gives me a failure rate, essentially, if I know their volume of products. But you can also put an upper limit to an extent. I mean, if 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 the failure probability is fifty percent, that company has either or is about to go out of business. <laughs> One of those two. Well, like, no, no, no not necessarily. I've run into companies oh, with that level of failure rate, and they had <laughs> such a profit margin they could give you three copies of their product before they thought that was excessive. I mean, seriously, they had a a medical device that just had an amazing profit margin and they'd ship you a new one in a heartbeat and it wasn't a cheap product. So there you go. uh... It varies dramatically. And that's been my personal experience. But let's say you're dealing with capacitors, for example, and capacitors and and diodes and stuff like that. Mass produced, simple, um, enduring trends matter. You could, I mean, the simpler the better because, firstly, the simpler it is, the easier it is to come up with better 
higher probability predictions for your warranty period. So they're firstly more likely to be embedded. Yeah. See, I wouldn't go to warranty calculus because uh, the capacitors are warranted for a month so they can get into the production facility and out. And they're looking at, is it damaged in shipping or is the batch just completely horrendous? And they'll make good on that. Right. And then we also know that electric, electric, electronic componentry manufacturers use those wonderful things called fits to characterize reliability, which we all know is beyond flawed. Right. And but they they one, they don't rarely do component vendors like the discrete individual electronic components. Rarely do they even know what components products and markets they're going into. I mean, they have some idea because they do some research to say, oh, we're in consumer products, we're in this or that or the other. They rarely get failure information other than what the assembly house says, hey, these were bent leads, you got to replace them, which is within days of them receiving it usually. Um, But their performance, their long-term performance, unless it's Mm -hmm. catastrophic, OEMs don't go back to the vendors and say, hey, you need to fix this. Uh, their ongoing fit rate stuff is, well, we shipped 3 billion last month and only heard about two failures, so they must be good. The issue is they don't, they don't typically hear about failures unless it's a custom one-off for a particular, you know, situation. Um, But they also tend to offer very short warranties and it's really to protect the assemblers and, and guard that them. So if they have a package with a bunch of bent leads in it, they can make that good. But if you have a bad electrolytic capacitor in your radio a year afterwards, that radio manufacturer is probably not going to, one, do the failure analysis to figure out it was that capacitor. And two is they're not going to go back to the capacitor vendor and say, hey, we want our money back. It costs them more to make mm-hmm. the phone call than to get the components uh, redressed. Right. And a lot of companies know that, which means that they deal with the failure probability and couple that with the likelihood of a customer yeah. actually doing what you're talking about. Yeah. So what do you, so if the, you're in a, you're a reliability engineer and you're working on a product and, and I didn't get an idea what industry it was, but the question was, is we're having trouble getting life data or failure rates, that information from our vendors. Uh, what can I use warranty? And I said, well, there's lots. Yeah, there's some information there, but it's, you know, it's troubled. How about you do some other stuff, like use similar parts or do you have that part already in products and use your own history from that or do this or do that? I mean, what would you advise somebody do if they just really, they need some reliability information for some components, but they, the vendor's not cooperative or doesn't have it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think culturally, a lot of us are. Uh, uh, it, it sounds very bureaucratic to me. I mean, you, you've been involved in organisations where the main aim is to understand reliability, and that sounds rather arbitrary and mm-hmm. rather, you know, ubiquitous and noble, whatever you want to call it. But there are organizations who say they're all about understanding reliability, but if the supplier doesn't give them that information, then they give up. That's just culturally how they roll. Yeah. Um, and that's just not good enough because it's your organization's name going on that finished system as you sell it and make lots of profit or do whatever you're supposed to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just, 
as opposed to saying here's steps one, two, three, it's more more a mindset where you say you need to own the let's call it effort of understanding how reliable these things are. And if your suppliers aren't coming to the table, well, that is a long-term cultural thing you need to address. It starts with making sure your people won't take no for an answer slash work it out themselves through testing similar systems or, you know, physics of failure or what have you. But over time, if, especially if you're going to be dealing with suppliers a lot, it's where you, you, you can get ahead of the curve, so to speak, and make sure when you're putting out, if you have an RFT or an RFP or you're looking for vendors in the first place, you select vendors based on their willingness to give you this reliability stuff. Yeah. Um, a lot of organizations who say, well, the vendors aren't giving me this data. Did you, I asked, well, did you tell them this is part of what they needed to do when you were selecting them? Oh, no, no, no. We just said they need to be this awesome. This way after the fact, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, it's, again, it's, it's not a, a, a quick fix. It's a cultural shift where the organization prioritizes knowing what the reliability of things are. And so it starts with your supply team. It starts with your um, designers. It starts with everyone because um, it, it needs to be a collective mindset, which is not the answer you're after. Because in this, this is not going to answer the question. Yeah, if he's got three months to get a you know an estimate for this right. new design, well, you're not you're not going to get there from here. But it do, it does show that there is potential for our listeners' organisation to say, you know what. We, we we hit this roadblock every single year or every single product. So what do we need to do? And, and the first thing is change the mindset, prioritize, you know, suppliers who were going to share data or, you know, create a lab. Because even if the suppliers do provide you data and even if it's their best attempt to give you that data, if you're using the capacitor in a unique environment, it's potentially irrelevant data. Um, yeah, yeah. So you need to own the effort of understanding reliability first and foremost it's not a box you can easily tick but well one of the good things is the question was you know can i use mill handbook 217 instead and I'm like, oh geez yeah no well that's an easy answer yeah <laughs> <laughs> answer that one now yeah and but it's the and i ran into this one time years and years ago um i was working with a, a part of a, a larger company that that made a, a game system and the group I was working with did the accessories like the, the joystick and the controllers and stuff like that. And then part of that system was a small board. It probably had eight parts on it that sat inside the game console. That was like the Wi-Fi receiver. I think it was Bluetooth or I don't know what technology it was, but it was the, right. the untethered link to your, to your, the system. And they hadn't changed the design in like five years because it just right. worked. And there, there was no recorded failure of it in millions of game consoles going out. And so a new reliability engineer joined the console team and he charged into my room, my office, and said, we need you to, to prove the reliability of your component. And I need a, 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 you know evidence that it's good. I said, do you have any evidence that it's ever failed? No. Okay. I'm done now. <laughs> but he wanted uh, me to run a test with 99% confidence that I was above the target value that they'd set, which was like one failure per billion or something like that. He had allocated out a, a target for this thing. And I said, right. 
I can't possibly meet that requirement and I don't have to. <laughs> yeah. It's again, confidence is a measure of you. It's not a measure of your device um, yeah. or item. So I told him to get the hell out of my office. And then the next second, my director comes walking in and, and, and says, what, what did you piss off? What's his name for? He's, he's kind of like your boss. And he goes, no, he isn't. He's an idiot. And here's why. And I showed him the math. <laughs> he goes, okay, let me go talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, you know, yeah, at some yeah. point you got to figure out what you need to know. I think that's right. my basic thing is, do you need to know the failure rate to the 15th degree for uh, every single component in your system? No. Cause even if you did, you're still going to get it wrong and you're yeah. going to be surprised by something that you just really, nobody ever could have expected. Right. And you might have, you, you might have, well, let's say 10 components. Most systems have way more than 10 components. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't need one of those components is going to be much more reliable than the rest. Yeah, just is. You don't need to know its failure probability to fifteen decimal points because that is going to be lost in the noise of any uncertainties you have in the estimates of your most dominant failure mechanisms. And so there's there's no point. Uh, I don't know if it's relevant, but I will launch on a story where. Um, uh, and you, you know which client I'm talking about, where they want to have a good understanding of reliability out to an extraordinarily long time frame. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the item in question is actually going to be maintained in really controlled, really nice environments for that reason. So the challenge then comes, how do we accelerate failure in an aging context in a way that allows us to get confidence that this thing is going to last that long. And a lot of the previous people they engaged before me, the pro they, they couldn't do it for, because their perspective was all about trying to accelerate and then extrapolate back to storage conditions. Mm -hmm. And what I proposed was let's accelerate. Uh, and that, sorry, that, that, that often doesn't work because, for example, if you turn up voltage, well, voltage will accelerate failure mechanisms but there's going to be zero volt supplied to our device in storage conditions. Yeah, so dividing by zero kind of doesn't work. Does, doesn't work. But what if we were to crank up voltage, and I'm using voltage as an example, right. but then be able to say, you know what? We crank up the voltage, got an accelerated, accelerated life model, and that meant that we could say with 99% confidence that this thing would last the centuries in question at two volts. So if we had two volts going through it continuously, then if we were able to demonstrate it's going to last, I'll just pick a random number, 200 years, with two volts going through that, that device, you'd be able to say with some confidence, therefore, we are really confident when there's no voltage going through it, it's going to be lasting longer than 200 years. And so you, you're not extrapolating back to the at-use conditions, but you're creating an environment uh, a boundary conditions yeah in that is one way of generating confidence we otherwise couldn't and i know you're using voltage and there's no voltage in the in the right in in use the trouble the issue i had is the failure mechanisms that we walk around here and now and deal with over the next five ten years um don't are different the failure mechanisms that you know like uh volt uh, dielectric breakdown yeah, under zero volts, it's pretty common that you won't have dielectric breakdown because if you don't apply voltage to it, it just won't happen. Um, 
But eventually they want to apply voltage to this. And is the mechanism excited by voltage or is it it's the punch through is caused by voltage, but does the dielectric degrade in some other chemical way that voltage has nothing to do with its acceleration? Oh, and that's a whole podcast in its own right. And I don't disagree with it, but yeah. uh, with what you're saying. But you have to be careful about thinking through, well, what mechanisms are you interested in? And what, you know, and, and then picking the rights in the, the concept you just outlined of, of saying, well, I can bound this is, is a way to do that. Um, right. But I'm going to go back to the original question is a, because they offer a 10 year warranty on it, does it mean anything that the product will last to 10 years in your application? There's not a, like a very low failure rate associated with that. That's you probably need to do a little bit more thinking and work to it. And I think more along the lines what you're talking about, Chris, is you got to change the culture. You got to start to take ownership of you really need to own this, this, information whether it's contracting with suppliers partnering with them to do testing doing testing on your in-house use your field data uh there's lots of ways you can get this number but none of them are give them a phone call and they give you the appropriate number right because yeah. vendors can be you know, sometimes understandably not sometimes not so understandably they can be cagey with information they give up and they might because they've had a bad experience with one of their clients where that data was used against them in a so-called yeah. court of law, and yeah. that's that's to be understood. Yeah. Um, but if you if you have it up front in your client selection process, hey, we need you to provide data. Here's why. It's what we're going to do with it. It starts generating confidence. It also allows you to exclude suppliers who just aren't interested in doing that. Because yeah. if reliability is important, then that's not a vendor who's going to help you get that all-important understanding of reliability. And they're most likely not going to create a reliable product at the end of the day. It's going to have all kinds of issues, but that might be a whole other podcast on that. Oh, I think we've touched on three potential podcast episodes. I know, we should take <laughs> notes here sometimes. So if you're listening to this and one of those three or more topics that we've touched on that you'd be interested <laughs> in, let us know. We'd, I didn't take notes on all of them. Um, or if you have something else on your mind or a question like uh, what we received on this one, and this question came through, I think it was um, through LinkedIn, if I remember right. But that's one of uh, three different ways you can get in touch with us. You can go over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. Or you can go to LinkedIn for Chris or I or the other hosts of the show. Or you could go to our about pages. There's lots of ways for you to get in touch. And the benefit is, is you get an answer. It might be a quick response and give you some more references or something to think about or, or a, a direction or, or an answer from our experience. Uh, but then stay tuned because it may well end up on as a podcast and we'll spend, you know, 20 minutes or so chatting about it and going a little bit deeper into a response for you. So please do get in touch. It does make the show and the topics we talk about, at least in my mind, relevant to what you're interested in. So that's one way for you to participate. Yeah, so with that, Chris, I think uh, we'll have to sit here with bated breath waiting for the uh, the list of topics that we touched on to come back up, unless you remember them. <laughs> but uh, we'll oh. see what happens. If only we had, like, pencils or paper or things like that we could use. I don't know. Oh, we recorded it. Oh, what am I thinking? We can play it back. <laughs> Fair enough. There you go. All right, thanks, Chris. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Fred. Always a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.